Hell Phoenix today. We have 55 signed up. And we have six, about six openings if you're interested in going to Hell Phoenix. Uh, take your Bibles. We're going to turn to Psalm 99. I need to make a, a, one announcement uh, about the Discipleship University. Tonight, my son Aaron was supposed to speak, and they had to cancel that. So if you were planning, one or two of you who were planning on going, <laughs> um, I was planning on missing, but no. <laughs> they ended up that uh, a case came up that they were dealing with in the state of Washington, and uh, it's before the Washington State Supreme Court, and he has to leave tomorrow morning. And uh, they were not expecting that, and uh, Peggy Lundy told us this past week that he had to cancel. Um, he's never argued before this court. He's going to sit in on a case or two and just feel out the judges because he needs to know how he can approach these judges. Uh, they have probably one of the... Uh, most liberal Supreme Courts in the United States. And so his team is going to be up there working on that. But Pe uh, uh, Peggy Lundy said that he's going to reschedule for January or February. So anyway, we'll give you a date on that. Okay, you have Psalm 99. If you need a Bible, there's one on the table in front of you. This is our last Psalm of the 2015 Psalm for the Summer Series. Next year we'll begin at Psalm 100, one of the most famous psalms uh, in the Bible, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. And uh, we will have about 50 psalms to complete the book of psalms. That's about three and a half years, three and a half summers. So, how many remember the first psalm that we started, the first time we started psalms in the summer? How many of you remember that? There's a few of them who remember that. Some of you, since that time, have gotten Alzheimer's. And you can't remember that. You can't remember what psalm we were in last week, even though we're 99 this week. I understand that. I had asked Glenn what, last week what psalm I needed to do this week. She directed me in the right direction. So anyway, um, this is, as Glenn said, this is an enthronement psalm because it starts off with the Lord reigns, uh, which is a familiar proclamation in psalms like 93 through 99. That's the theme that God is king, these are royal psalms. And uh, notice the word Lord there is in all caps. And for those of you who are visiting, uh, I will repeat myself, the audience knows this, the main audience knows this, but whenever you see the word Lord in all caps, this is a translation of the Hebrew word Jehovah or Yahweh. And this is how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses said, well, who should I say sent me? God said, tell them that I am that I am sent you. And that English word I am is Jehovah or Yahweh. That's the uh, noun form of a verb to be. The verb to be. I am that I am that I am that I am. You know? So uh, this, and God revealed himself as Jehovah, the great I am, the one who has always existed and will always exist. Different than the other gods of the nations which were created in the minds of the people. 
and they were created through minds of superstition. And so God made an agreement, or what we call a covenant, with the nation of Israel and said, I will bless you uh, and protect you if you will obey me. And the people said, we will, and they didn't. And that's why Israel uh, ceased to exist in the sense of the nation. And the great Assyrian empire came down upon Israel, the northern kingdom, and just demolished it. And then the Babylonian kingdom came down on the southern part of the uh, kingdom of Israel and just demolished it. And then after that, the Medo-Persian Empire came down, and then that was followed by the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And by the time you're in the New Testament, the Jews are under Roman authority. They've always been under authority. They've been captives to some foreign nation and foreign gods, literally for hundreds of years. And so they were never free, except for a very small period of time, because they didn't obey this God of the covenant, the Lord. So here's how we're going to outline the book, or outline this particular psalm. Verses 1 through 3 will be section 1. We're going to call this the fear of the Lord. You'll see that. That's one of the themes of these verses. The fear of the Lord, verses 1 through 3. Second section will be verses 4 and 5, and that deals with the strength of the Lord. The strength of the Lord. And then verses 6 through 9 deals with the forgiveness of the Lord. Forgiveness of the Lord. Each one of these sections closes in a similar way. Look how section 1 closes at the end of verse 3. It says this about God. He is holy. Look how the second section closes at the end of verse 5. What does it say? He is holy. Look how the last section closes at the end of verse 9. For the Lord our God is holy. So that's a refrain. That's a chorus. Remember the Psalms our songs. And this is a song, and that is the refrain of this song, that the Lord himself is holy. So let's look at this first section, the fear of the Lord. Okay? First we have the proclamation, which is simply a statement of fact. The Lord reigns. When it says the Lord reigns, that means that he rules above all other gods, and he has conquered the nations. He has blessed Israel by conquering the nations, and he is the reigning God. So all the gods of the nations have been defeated. So he had the strength to win these victories. Okay? That's what it means that he reigns. Then what we have is the expected response to that fact that God reigns. And here is the first response. Let the people, plural actually in the Hebrew, let the peoples tremble. Right there, let the peoples tremble. God reigns, he's victorious, therefore let the peoples, which would be the nations, do what? Tremble. They need, to, they need to shake in their boots when they think of this God, the God of the Jewish people. Um, they should shake in their boots because he is powerful. He has defeated their nation. So we have God reigns, we have the response. Okay? Next we see that God resides. He not only reigns on the throne, he resides somewhere. Look in, in, in the middle of verse 1. He resides or he dwells between the cherubim. Now, this is a picture of God on his throne in heaven. That's where God reigns. He reigns in heaven. He reigns over the earth, but he reigns in heaven. 
And he sits on the throne. And Isaiah the prophet, when he had this vision of God, he saw God on the throne. And he saw cherubim, which are angels. Notice it says, he reigns, he dwells between, sometimes it says in or above or amongst the cherubim. Now, the I-M ending on that word cherub simply means there's more than one. He dwells between the cherubim, angels. Uh, cherubim were a particular class of angels that protected the throne of God. Just as the President of the United States has a secret service that protects him, God has these angels called cherubs that guard the throne of God. Lucifer, before his fall, was called the anointed cherub that covereth. He covered the throne of God. But what happened to Lucifer? Pride built up in his soul, if you want to use that word, and he fell. God cast him out of heaven because he thought he was somebody. He was the anointed, not a anointed, he was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. God only had one bodyguard at that time. You want to put it in those terms. And Satan, Lucifer became Satan because of pride and he cast, was cast out. So what did God do? God chose two cherubim. One on this side of the throne and one on that side of the throne. And God dwelt right in the middle between the cherubim. So the cherubim were looking at each other. This cherubim was looking over at that cherubim. And this cherubim was looking over at that cherubim. And if they ever started getting a little pride and thought, I'm really somebody, all they had to do was look across and they saw another one just like themselves. So that kept the cherubim from the rest of the angels from falling and getting uh, swelling up in pride. So God dwells between the cherubim and they protect, they're protectors. So when Adam and Eve sin. And God cast them out of the garden. You know what God does? He puts a cherubim right at the entrance of the garden with a flame to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden. He protects the tree of life. And so a cherubim or protectors. So then you know what happened was that God commissioned Moses to build a tabernacle. Remember that in Exodus? And he said, I want this tabernacle to be patterned after my dwelling place in heaven. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to come down and I'm going to dwell on earth. So he told Moses to build a box called an ark. And he told Moses on one side of the box to build a golden cherub. And on the other side of the box put another golden cherub. And they would face each other. And when that project was done... The power and presence of God came down right in that tabernacle and dwelt right there between the wings of the cherubim. And so that was God's dwelling place on earth. So you have this concept in verse 1 that he dwells between the cherubim in heaven and on earth. And of course that box was then put in the tabernacle in a place called the Holy of Holies. And no one could go in there. Because if you went in there, what happened? died. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year with a sacrifice. And when he went in, they tied a rope around his waist in case he dropped dead 
They weren't going to go in after him. They'd just pull him out. So this is this God who dwells between the cherubim and they're, they're protectors and you better watch out. So look what the response should be at the end of verse 1. It says this. Let the earth be moved. Uh, and again, this speaks about the earth and its population, and mainly the Gentiles, the people who are not children of God. God's people are established. He's established this nation. But the people who don't have a relationship with this God, hey, they shake in their boots. In fact, the earth under them shakes in the presence of this holy God. I've felt the shaking of earth before, and it's not fun. I was out in California when there was a pretty moderate earthquake out there. Center, the epicenter was in Whitaker, California. Knocked down a couple bridges and roads buckled. And I was in a hotel when that happened. And it was scary. And I remember going down in that parking lot, 3.30 in the morning. I just got, went down in pajamas. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. Everything was shaking. And my, I told some of the people this, but I, I looked out my hotel window and there was a swimming pool. And the water was going in the swimming pool. And I had heard, if you look out your window, and the water's going like this out in California, you're in the earthquake. So I got down there in the, in the middle of the parking lot, and there were a hundred people out there in that parking lot. And I said, is this an earthquake? And those people looked at me like I was crazy. I was scared. And that's what it says. You should be scared of this God who dwells between the cherubs if you don't have a relationship with this God. And then it says this, verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. So here's where God lives. Zion is Jerusalem. And he is great. And where is he great? He's great in Jerusalem. He protects his people there. And then it says this in verse 2. And he is high above all the people's plural. Do you see that? He's high above the Gentile people, in a sense. So, uh, the Gentile nations, he's, he's heads and shoulders above them. He has more power, more authority. He's conquered them. He's above them. They should be afraid, this God who dwells in Jerusalem. And then we have the response to that fact. Look at verse 3. Let them, that would be the peoples, the Gentile peoples, praise your great and awesome Name. Now that's the third let, isn't it? In verse 1, let the peoples tremble. Look at verse, end of verse 1, let the earth be moved at this God. And now in verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome, or some translations say terrible name. These are commands. God commands the people who live on earth to do these three things. Shake in your boots. Watch out. The earth under you could open up because of this God. And you need to praise his awesome name. Great and awesome name. Now a lot of people have awesome names. Great names. Uh, terrible names. That's what the word awesome means there. Terrible names. If you were living back in the late 1930s or 40s and you were Jewish, for example, in Germany, and you heard the name Hitler, you would shake in your boots. 
This man was great. Not in the good sense, but he was terrible. There was even a man whose name was terrible, wasn't it? Ivan the Terrible. Remember that? He was the Tsar of Russia in the 1500s, and he just killed people. People were scared to death of Ivan the Terrible. They would shake in their boots when they knew he was coming. He killed one of his sons who was the heir to the throne because he didn't think the kid could, could handle the job, and he gave the throne to his younger son. So this guy was a terrible person. But there's no name to be feared or praised more than this God, Jehovah. And in the Old Testament, the name Jehovah uh, in theology is called a tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, which is a word or a name that cannot be written or pronounced. And Jews in ancient times, when they came across God's name, would not pronounce the name. They were so fearful, had such reverence for that name, they would not pronounce God's name, Jehovah. And they wouldn't write it down on paper either. Because they had too much respect and reverence for God's name to actually put pen to ink or ink to, to paper and write down that name. So instead of saying Jehovah or writing Jehovah, they would substitute that name with another name, and they, they would write down Adonai, which is a word, when you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in small letters, that's Adonai. When you see the word Lord in capital letters, that's Jehovah. Well, in Je we say Jehovah all the time, but the Jewish, oh, ancient Jews didn't do that. In fact, there are Orthodox Jews today that still won't write God's name out. What will they write? G dash D. They won't even write the name out because they have this respect for God's name. So uh, this is what we're talking about here. His name is great. His name is terrible. It's awesome. Those of you who uh, may have read the Harry Potter novels, there's an evil character in there. Voldemort. Whose name must not be mentioned. Terrible person that you wouldn't mention. So so scary that you wouldn't even whisper. Why? Because he's evil. But here, God's name is great and terrible, not because he's evil, but just the opposite. Look how in verse 3 ends, it says he is what? Holy. He's so much more holy than we are that to stand in his presence is almost and so here's this first section, and it deals with the fear of the Lord and how the nation should fear the Lord. Now we come to the strength of the Lord. Now this is interesting. Now look at verse 4. It says, the king's strength also loves justice. You see the word also? That means the king's strength has done something else, doesn't it? And what has the king's strength done? The king's strength has conquered the nation. And that's why he reigns. But guess what? The king's strength also does something else. It loves justice. Uh, God is fair. Okay, He loves justice. And look at this next one. The psalmist says directly to God, You have established equity. Now what in the world does that mean? It doesn't say equality. Don't read equality there. What does it say? You've established what? 
equity. What does yours say? Equity? What is equity? Well, we know what equity is if you have a mortgage, but they didn't have mortgages in those days. So it's not that kind of equity. Uh, equity is a theological term that refers to the inner ability of a conscience to discern between good and evil. <laughs> the inner ability of the conscience to discern between good and evil. And your conscience will either vindicate your actions or it will condemn your actions. And notice it says there in verse 4 that God has established this. He has given us a conscience. He's built into each one of us this ability to discern right from wrong. And he loves justice, and guess what he wants us to do? Do what is right and just by people. See? And that's how Israel was built, to be a just, kind nation. They didn't do that, but that's what they were supposed to do. And then the psalmist says in verse 4, You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And we know the name Jacob is another word for Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So what we have here is that God has executed. He wants us to be fair, but he has executed justice and righteousness in Israel. He has given the Jewish people a law, a standard by which to live that is the that is the law of the land. If they're obedient to that, they're blessed. If they aren't obedient to that, they are cursed. God has executed justice and fairness in Israel. Then what we have is the response. In light of that fact, what should the people do? Look what it says in verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Do you see that? Exalt the Lord our God. Now notice something here. Now we're dealing with God as our Lord. Do you see that? Our God. You see? Verses 1 through 3 dealt with God and the nations. That's them out there. But now we're dealing with our God. See, he has ex executed justice and righteousness in Jacob, see? in Israel. Therefore, the response should be lift up, exalt the Lord, our God. That's what we should be doing. And then it says, and we need to do something else. Worship at his footstool. Now what in the world does that mean? Worship at his footstool. Now that's a, that's a strange one. You think, well, that means worship at his feet. Isn't that what you would say? Yeah, I mean, if you had common sense, you would say, use a little bit of logic, that means worship at his feet. But that's not what it means. This phrase, worship at God's footstool, or bow down before God at his footstool, is a reference to the ark in the tabernacle. It means you're to go up to the, into the tabernacle as far as you can go, and you're to bow down before the God who's in that place called the Holy of Holies. Now, there's four places where that's mentioned, but since we're in Psalms, I can show you one. Okay? So look over at Psalm 137, or 132, rather. And you see this reference to the tabernacle. When you get to Psalm 132, look at verse 7. Here's what it says. 
Let us go into his tabernacle. See, that's the location. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. So that's where his footstool is. His footstool is in the tabernacle. Other verses actually say the footstool is the ark of the covenant. So we're to go in as far as we can go, and we're to worship God. So that's uh, very interesting that that is the response that we are to show, demonstrate. And then it ends, Psalm 99 and verse 5, that section ends with, He is holy. So we're to bow down, we're to exalt God, and the word worship there means to bow down, bow the knee. So we're to exalt Him, and we are to humble ourselves before this God who lives in the tabernacle, according to the psalmist. Now we come to this third section, the forgiveness of God. And this is another one of those interesting sections. Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Now wait a second. Aaron's a priest. What's Moses? He's a prophet. But here, what does it say Moses is? He's a priest. Now, Moses wasn't a priest, but he acts like a priest in many ways because one of the things a priest does is he intercedes for the people. He's a mediator between the people and God. And that's what Moses is. He's an intercessor on behalf of the people. So in that sense, he and Aaron are both priests, although Moses isn't making sacrifices. That's how it's being used here. And Samuel, look at that. We have Samuel in that same category. Was among those who did what? Called upon his name. Notice that. So here's how the writer is defining priest here. It's somebody who does what? Calls upon God's name. And on behalf of the people. On behalf of the people. So we have places where Samuel cries out, Oh Lord, save us from the Philistines! See, that's an intercessor. He's acting as a priest right there. Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They, Aaron, Moses, so on and so forth, called upon the name, and he did what? He answered them. Okay, so they got responses. He, that's God, spoke to them, that's Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, in the cloudy pillar. And you say, well, wait a second. That pillar was in the desert and uh, Samuel wasn't there. It's not talking about the pillar that was in the desert. When God came down between the cherubim, He came down as a pillar. Pillar of smoke right down. And that was the glory of God. And that's how He dwelt. And so here's God. He speaks from the tabernacle in the sense and He speaks and He answers them. He spoke to them. They kept his testimonies. They kept his laws, in other words. These were, these were good guys, these intercessors, and the ordinances that he gave them. So we have these individuals who are interceding for the people of God, and they are obedient to God. When others are turning away from God, they remain faithful to God. When others can't hear God, the masses of people, Moses and Aaron and Samuel can hear God. So we see that these are in this category. Verse 8 says, You answered them, O Lord our God. 
You answered them, O Lord our God. Now watch this. You were to them God who does what? Forgives. You were to Moses, the God who forgives. You were to Aaron, the God who forgives. You were to Samuel, the God who forgives. What does this tell us about Moses and Aaron and Samuel? They need what? They need forgiveness. They're not perfect. So what does God do? He extends forgiveness to these individuals. So they were intercessors. They weren't perfect. They sinned. But God forgave them when they sinned. But look at this next phrase in verse 8. Though you forgave them, though, <laughs> although, even though you took vengeance on their deeds. They were forgiven, but guess what God did? He took vengeance on their deeds. What deeds? When they sinned, he forgave them, but he still took vengeance on their deeds. Moses struck a rock. And that's not what he was supposed to do. Aaron built a golden calf. That's not what he was supposed to do. Samuel appointed his son's leaders over Israel. And they were bums. And that's not what he was supposed to do. So we see that they sinned. And you know what God did? He forgave them. Totally forgave them. But he took vengeance on their deeds. As a result of Moses doing that, he could not get into the promised land. Because Aaron built the golden calf, God sent a plague upon Israel. Took vengeance on that deed. When Samuel appointed his bum son to his head of Israel, God gave Israel King Saul. They were forced to live under King Saul. Terrible reign. So we see that God took vengeance on their deeds. And think about David. David sinned. Did God forgive David of his sin? Yes, he forgave David of his sin. But, guess what? His son died because David committed adultery with Bathsheba. There's a consequence to your sin. And they saw that as God taking vengeance upon their deeds. And I think that we miss that. We don't understand that as evangelical Christians. We are so grace-happy that we're just, God forgives us, and guess what? We just go on with life. God forgives you, but guess what? There are consequences. And he takes vengeance on your deeds. I think the Catholics understand this better than we do. That's why they have a category called purgatory. It's not a biblical category, but I understand it. Because what they're saying is, you're forgiven, but guess what? You still have to be purged. <laughs> you still have to burn a little bit. <laughs> so they have that, cat, that extra category trying to figure out things like this. But I think all we need to understand is that although God forgives us, you know, there are consequences to the deeds themselves. And so I remember this uh, cartoon that I read about. I didn't see it, but I read about the cartoon. In fact, the guy, uh, it was Brooks Robinson, the third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles, that told this story. And he said he was reading the cartoon of Andy Gump, which I don't think is in the papers anymore. But Andy Gump is having a discussion with his son Chester. And he wants to show him the seriousness of being disobedient. And so he says to Chester, every time you're disobedient, I want you to drive a nail into that post. And so 
hear it every day. Jeff's just having to drive these nails into this post. The before, before he reforms, that whole post is filled up. And then once he reforms, he's able to pull the nails out. And he starts pulling the nails out. And finally, they're all out. Like he's been forgiven. But then he looks at the post and he says, Dad. He says, look, there's still holes. <laughs> and they're so ugly. And that's the truth. There's a result. You can be forgiven, but there's results. And that's what happens here, is that, yes, God forgave these great men. They were men after God's own heart, but they weren't perfect. They were forgiven, but guess what? God took vengeance upon their deeds. And he takes vengeance on ours. You know, we wonder what's going on. Well, if we need to look back at our life a little bit, maybe we'll understand what's going on. So in, that, in light of the fact that God is a forgiving God, but he takes vengeance on our deeds, here's our response. Exalt the Lord our God. Lift him up. And worship, bow down to him, at his holy hill. That is where the tabernacle is. Notice his hill is called a holy hill. And then comes the final refrain. Why should you do this? Because... The Lord our God is holy. So he's holy in verse 3, into the first section. Holy in verse 5, into the second section. Holy in verse 9, into the third section. We have three holies, and when the early church read that psalm, they read it from the perspective of being Trinitarians. That there was God the Father, Holy. God the Son. Holy. Now the Jews the wouldn't have seen it this way. God the Son. Holy. God the Spirit. Holy. 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning my song shall rise to thee. Holy. 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 Merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Lord, we thank you for the song. May we learn the lesson of the song. May we realize that you are a God who reigns. A God who's victorious over your enemies and the enemies of your people. May we realize, Lord, that you're a God who forgives. May Lord, we realize that you're a God that we should exalt and we should bow down to with humble adoration. Oh Lord, help us learn these lessons, apply them to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. And right after that.